Hello legends, welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. At Cub, we say we're your business family because that's exactly what we are. I catch up with Cub member Giovanni. I won't say his last name because I'll butcher it. He says it in the podcast a couple of times. Gio is literally a legend in the film industry. He's worked on films like Superman, Star Wars, Matrix, just a bunch of big films. He's an executive director and producer and the owner of Benchmark Media, which is a brilliant uh, video content production agency um, that are really cool because they not just create the, uh, the concept for the video and, and the brand communication, but they also create the actual footage themselves. They are amazing. I know that because they did Cub's first ever TV commercial, which aired last year. Gio is a great friend of mine. He's been a member for a very long time. And like I said, he's an absolute legend. He knows his industry and he has some incredible stories. I loved the conversation. So I hope you enjoyed the show. And we're live. I'm here with Giovanni. Can you say your last name for me correctly so that I don't butcher that beautiful Italian name? Bacileo. Bacileo. I definitely wasn't going to say that. <laughs> mate, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Thank you for having me. You've been a member now for many years, have you? I have, yeah. How long? Yeah. I think I think I'm like three and a half, maybe a little bit more. How cool is that? We turned oh. five in two months. Yeah. No, it's awesome. It's awesome. Um, mate, you are our only member that has made it big in the film industry. You've been on, uh, you've been involved with uh, creating films like Matrix, one of the Star Wars, was it? Yeah, it was uh, episode two, two I worked on. Superman, what else? Um, I did a bunch of films, um, Moulin Rouge. Moulin um, Rouge. film called The Knowing with Nick Cage. The and Knowing. <laughs> another one with... Uh, Gerard Butler. I um, love Gerard Butler. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, yeah, film called Nims Island, Gerard Butler and Jodie Foster. Um, I, I think I think if I looked at all my credits, there's probably about about 20, 20 films that Jeez. I worked on over the years. Jeez. Yeah. And, and so and now you've taken all that film experience and you've obviously got or you've had a benchmark for how many years now, your, your company? Since 2011. Oh, a long time now. Yeah. And and what's the focus with benchmark benchmark? What do you, what do you what do you do? Well, basically what the company is is it's a bit of a hybrid agency. We wanted to create something um, that was in between an advertising agency and a production company, but still a company that creates film and television as well. So we wanted to be able to give a lot of clients that I saw that that couldn't afford the big Ogilvies and the Singletons um, to actually be able to have a service uh, at a higher level um, but without the huge overheads, without the huge monthly retainers. Yeah. So you've brought your – you basically bring Hollywood-level production to medium-sized businesses. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly and what it was. Because you've got some big clients. You've got the Star – you, yep. what was it? The Star Casino. You've got some monster clients as well. Yeah, we service the Star Casino. We service Multiplex – and what's the difference between a, so an ad agency and a production house? What well, traditionally, traditionally an ad agency is um, predominantly about uh, marketing and branding, designing the concepts and doing the strategy to sell your product or service. To appeal then to they, the target market. Yeah. 
So then they, and they do all the analytics and they're brilliant at it. They're really, really brilliant. And I'm not going to say that we're ever going to replace or do a job exactly like theirs that's a specialist level. Um, but there are some companies out there that don't need that service and they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. But they do need it at some level at a smaller scale. Um, so traditionally a production, uh, an advertising agency, once they've got all that right, they'll come to us and say, hey, we need this ad made, we need this campaign made, you're the production company, can you execute it now? And we do that. But what we've done is that we've actually taken a little bit of the ad agency and we've put it into the marketing and strategy and the design and we actually produce the content for them as well. Okay, so you've combined those two. So you, you almost a company would save the cost of having to go to both. They go to you and and while you're not the uh, expert ad agency, you can do a great level of, uh, of that strategy in regards to the content. But most importantly and what you're actually best at, I'm assuming, is creating kick-ass content. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Awesome, awesome. And, and was that something that was um, – can you say your last name for me again? <laughs> Pachaleo. Pachaleo, wait. It's still in its um, Latin form. That's why it's um, it's uh, spelt that way. The C is a ch. And my father actually um, did some history on our family and it dated back to the 14th century and the name uh, hadn't changed since then. You've got kids, yeah. I do, yeah. What, what are the, you know, when the teachers call out your kid's name at the assemblies and things like that, how do they say your last name? Patch. Patch. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. Bachelet. And why don't you tell us, um, where you come from, where you, what your upbringing was, and, and let's go through the story of how you rose through the ranks of the Hollywood film industry. Sure. I mean, look, my parents, are, you know, my father was seven when he came to Australia. My mum was 14. So I'm the, you know, I'm first generation Australian, grew up in the inner west. Yeah. Um, went to, a, you know, a normal school, all boys school, went to St. Patrick's College out of Strathville. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was always... I loved uh, film from a from from a young age, and my parents are wonderful people, and they never ever uh, said that there was nothing I couldn't achieve. Like if you want to sh- go shoot for the stars, then then you know they're there if you want them. You just got to go out and grab them. You know, it was it was something that I I I never shied away from. And when I was in year ten, I did work experience for you know a production company. Um, and then when I was in year 11, I went back to the same company to work experience. And then when I was in year 12, I did more work experience. And um, So you were a hard worker. You had school and you were working uh, yeah. on your passion. Yeah. And where, where in Italy are your parents from? They're from Calabria. Calabria. Yeah, way, way down south, right yeah. right at the tip of the boot. Okay. Yeah. Is that near Sicily? No, Sicily's Just right. before Sicily. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the white before it, isn't it? Because yeah. you'd have to go off that and then you'd hit Sicily, wouldn't you? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. and, and so you worked super hard in high school, and I, I did. I also worked at Flemington Markets for my uncle on Saturdays. You know, I was uh, thirteen, I think, and I'd get there with at three o'clock in the morning with my mum. I'd make thirty bucks um, every Saturday. I did that until I was, I think, sixteen. I did it for three years, and I saved up two thousand dollars, and I uh, bought our family's first computer. No way! Yeah. It's incredible. What year yeah. would that have been? Would have been a fat computer. They were big back then. Yeah, it was the Omega Five Hundred. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. it had like half a megabyte in it. It was awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, um, but yeah, look, you know, I, I, working from a young age, you know, I, my both my boys who are seventeen now and fifteen have been working at McDonald's for the last couple of years. 
part-time. I think it's a really, really good foundation um, for teenagers to do some do some hard yards early, you know. We had that. I think we had this conversation once. Remember I was telling you that my old man said the same thing to me. He told me I had to work at a fast food uh, restaurant. That was yeah. that, It was a must. I had to do it. Yeah. I ended up working at a pizza shop called Pizza Ola. I can't remember where it was. Yeah. In, and I was a delivery boy. So I used to make dough and I'd deliver. I think all people yeah. should do fast food at some point. Oh, yeah. Look, you know, everything like that. It's, it grounds you. It makes you appreciate your dollar. Teaches you systems as well. Oh, absolutely. And so then what? What happened? How did you get – did you study film? Did you – I studied advertising. So the production company I was working with, I studied advertising. I was doing that for it was a three-year course. I got to two and a half years and because I was doing it part-time, um, I, was, I was working uh, as, a, as a runner, as a freelancer, um, just getting coffee, picking up stuff for crew – you know, the production manager would hire me for in that capacity. After two and a half years, someone recommended me to work on film as a set production assistant and that film was a film called The Thin Red Line and I was basically an attachment to the assistant director's team. And I'd never worked on a film before. I'd only ever worked on TV commercials um, and it was... How old were you at that point? I was probably, I think I was about 20 20, oh, real young. 21 maybe. I think 21. Yeah. And, and was it an Australian film? No, it was an American, American film. Also a big um, film. Yeah. It was a $70 million film. It was the biggest film to be made in Australia at the time. One of the first big American films to come to Australia. Um, and we filmed it in far north Queensland in Port Douglas. And it was with the famous director Terence Malick. And the film had Sean Penn, Nick Nolte, John Cusack, Woody Harrelson. Wow, Incredible. It was a big film. Incredible cast. And what did you learn? What, what, what did that do for you? Um, I was really lucky because um, at that capacity, I think on that film you had four or five different assistant directors from first AD all the way down to, you know, third assistant director and, and, and two set PAs and I was one of them. But on that film, Terence Malick, the director, he would go missing. So for the first two weeks we'd be filming in like long, tall grass and – We'd be on set and he'd just disappear and like he's like for two hours he's like far out. Where is this guy? He's gone. Where was he? He just went off thinking and we'd lost so much production time. So my boss, after two weeks, he just said, your job, your job is to stick by his side. And I'm like, okay. And so that was me on set standing next to the director for the next seven months and it was the best I mean, this is an Academy Award-winning director, and you've got you've got cast like Sean Penn, you've got an award-winning cinematographer. So it was my education; it was my university degree into filmmaking. So your job was literally to watch the director because he kept going wandering around. Initially, yeah, it was like stand awesome. by him. And so you got to just and, learn from him. And I just got to learn. I got to learn how he communicated with actors. You know the decisions that he made. It was just amazing. So, did the director like having you around? What was his name again? Terence Malick. Terence Malick. He's an Academy Award winning director and he, he really allowed you to learn, yeah? What are, yeah. Some, what are some of the lessons he taught you? What did you learn from him? I think one of the biggest lessons I learned was collaboration and collaborating with the actors and giving them the opportunity to actually have input. As much as you might think that you have the vision – 
But what I learned was, you know, collaboration was king and their input was equally as important as what you think is right. Once you get that collaboration right, then that's when the magic happens. So the, you, you mean the actor's input? So uh, this director really respected the thoughts of the actors playing the roles. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And also the crew. And then, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of things on that film that you didn't quite understand until you understood the mechanics of filmmaking and how a crew can, you know, they're such hard workers and like they're it's like being in the military. They're incredible. I think if I think if every industry had a film crew in their organisation, it, it we'd all be just brilliant. Because like, they, they're, they're that good at doing what they do. They're, they're, they're just soldiers they're, and they're also contractors. You've got to understand that there's not much work for them either. So every job, every day to them is their last day. That's and, how they operate. And, and the film industry is a lot like the construction industry in that if you make one tiny mistake, it costs a fortune, no? Oh, absolutely. It it totally does. Um, I think the only difference is is that in the construction industry there's a lot more work. Yeah. The film industry, it's a smaller pool. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one mistake, one wrong move. It can ruin your reputation. can ruin you for life. Like, so it's a really tough industry. Yeah. You don't have a second chance. That's real reality. I, I understood that early on. You saw that early on? Oh, totally. I saw people make mistakes and never saw them again. No way. Never again. I'm, and, and I'm talking about working at that elite level. I was so lucky to that for that to be the first film that I worked on allowed me to work at such an elite level for, at that point. It, it was a benchmark to uh, like a platform that, you know, normally you'd work your way up on smaller films, lower budget films. But for me being launched into that top 10% was incredible. So to stay in that circle, you had to be on your game all the time. And so you really built a bit of a reputation for yourself on the on that set. I did, yeah, yeah correct. Because yeah, yeah. that that kind of launched your career. No, what, what, did. where did you go from there? From there, I went on to films like Babe Two and The Pig, um, yeah. Babe Pig in the City, Pig, yeah, oh, Babe Pig in the City, great film. Yeah, and look, and the Americans are wonderful because when they come back to Australia to do more films, they just go, well, you know, who were the crew that worked on that film? We want them. I learned the American system of filmmaking as well, which was the mechanics of the set was a little bit different to how the Aussies do it. In what regard? Just in structure, organisation. They're um, a lot more operationally driven, aren't they? They're, they're, oh. they're really like, it's a system. Yeah, absolutely. And there's just, I think, no room for laziness. Mm. Yeah. So Australia's a little bit more relaxed in regards to filmmaking? Probably, yeah. I'd say a little bit more relaxed, but then at the same time, uh, there's a little bit more um, red tape, so to speak. There's In what regard? What do you mean? We've got a bit of a tall poppy syndrome, okay. I think. Um, and when it comes to – it's, I, I think it's changed a lot now, but back then there, there wasn't, say, for instance, you know, with the Australian – in the assistant director's team in, on an Australian film back then, there wasn't much respect for someone in my position where with how the Americans work – it was the complete opposite. It was like, no, no, you guys are on set. You control the set. You actually dictate on how the film should be run because, you know, you're driving the bus. So the directors, the American directors, the American system, the directors would actually give more ownership to 
to the uh, assistant directors and the assistant directors' teams because they're the people on the set so that they actually want you to have a bit of ownership. 100%. Uh, isn't that cool? Yeah. I, well, I mean, yeah, just like running a good business, your, your team should feel like that they have responsibility and power and ownership over what they do and, um, uh, and have a sense of pride. Oh, absolutely. And like the, the way the Australians were, the, the way the Australian production team were running films, they were actually doing it in the opposite way. They were like the CEOs sitting back making decisions without even, you know, hardly coming to set. You just go, well, hang on a minute. And so what's the role, what, what's the structure of a film? So that you've got the director, you've got the assistant director, what, what, what's the, how does that all work? Yeah, so you've got you've got your producers who a lot of them are, you know looking at scheduling and 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 budgeting and making sure that the finance is right, making sure you've got a crew in place, and they don't sit above the director; they assist the director. Wait, sorry, so so because you you are an executive director and a producer, so what's yeah. the role of the producer? You, what you just said, what do they do? So producers generally um, look at budgeting. Yep. making sure that the finance is in place, making sure that the scheduling is right, making sure that you've got a good crew around the director to actually create the film. Yeah, they're, um, like, they're like the developer in the situation of a building. Exactly, They're not yeah. the builder. They, they find the builder, they find the site, they do the finance, they get the loan, they do. Yeah. So that's the producer. Yeah, and they also help manage run the film as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the director? The director's in charge of story, um, directing on set, vision, um, making sure that the actors know where to be and what to do in terms of uh, their performance. So it's more performance-driven, it's more story-driven, it's the entire vision of the actual film, what you see on screen visually um, when it comes to uh, uh, shots and emotion and performance, that's the director's responsibility. They're the, like the creative side of it. Exactly, yeah. Okay, and then what's the structure down from the director then? So from there you've got the first assistant director um, and that person is in charge of the schedule and in charge of running the set, making sure that everything, every day-to-day operations, the mechanics of the set is going to run to schedule and make sure that we that you make the day basically. Yeah. And then you've got a, a second assistant director. And I spent a l- – that's the majority of my role at the time – I spent most of my time in that role as a key second assistant director and basically you take that schedule and you enforce it and you make sure that everything that needs to happen on that day and tomorrow and next week and next month is going to work. So I would take a script and I would rip it apart. I would know every nut and bolt. I'd know every sentence on every page and I would make sure that Everything was scheduled within an inch of its life and you enforce the operations of the set, the mechanics of the set every day. So every crew member you knew exactly who they were, where they needed to be. Everyone had a daily schedule. Everyone had a weekly schedule. Everyone had a schedule for the next three months. What happened if something went wrong? There's a lot that always went wrong but you would have backup and, you know, you, you, you'd be running two schedules anyway. If you're filming outside, you've got a wet weather day, you've got people on hold, you've got 16 different departments that you're, that you're um, managing as well. So there was, there was no room for error. Like it just couldn't happen. Things did happen where you had to move stuff around. Actors didn't become available. You'd have to move scenes around. You'd get wet weather. Um, 
something wouldn't be ready, you'd, you'd have to change the schedule. But you'd always foresee that. You'd, you'd look at the contingency. You'd have the plan. If this happens, that 100%. happens. Yeah. And so would you say it's more of an organisation role than a creative role in a sense? Because you're really just – you've got to organise the whole thing. Exactly. That, that was my role. It was organisation. Wow. Yeah. And so you, you did that on, for example, like Superman. Yeah. Movie, yeah. Can you describe to us what it's actually like making a movie? What are people like? What's the chaos? What's the, the drama? Actors are sleeping with extras and all this <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I mean, look at that. Yeah. A lot, it's, it's, um, it's not as glamorous as you think it is. Um, it is. It is a lot of fun. And the energy and the exhilaration and it is it is right up there. You you got to understand you're spending, you know, the production spending a million dollars a day. So a million dollars a day. How many days does much. it take to film a movie? Yeah. Um, well, that film I think I can't remember how many days. I think it was like fifty something days. Wow. Um, so and and that's and I'm talking about Superman. For, for, for instance, because it was one of the most expensive films ever made. So for that film it was a million dollars a day because we had so much going on. And so what's the business model of – I don't want to get off the topic of talking about what it's like in the set because yeah. uh, I, I want to focus on that. But what's the, the business model of the film industry? So, you know, make Superman for $50 million. Yeah. And then – or it would cost more, I'd assume, because then you've got to pay actors. This is just for the filming of it, isn't I it? I think, yeah, I think that film cost four hundred million in total. Holy fuck, yeah. four hundred million! And then the model is okay. We've got to hope that enough people watch this in the movies and on iTunes that we make a billion dollars. Exactly, yeah, and, and profit six hundred million. Yeah, is yeah. it a highly profitable industry? Would you say? I think it really depends on the product, and that's and that's with anything really. Um, it really depends on the quality of the product and how you market it and you know, how much you spend and I really understood that, you know, look, you can make a really, really great film for little money. You know, you look at Saw for instance, you know, they made that on a smell of an oily rag and made so much money. But, you know, I think, um, you know, when you get the formula right and you get the right marketing and you get the right people behind it, you get the right cast, there's there's one thing and I think it's in, in one of my quotes I said earlier, uh, there's evidence to success. So you, you can follow the steps, especially today, you know, there there is a formula to um, to to at least well. yeah at least giving it its best shot, um, and I think that's what filmmaking is: the mechanics of having an idea to writing a script, getting the right people on board. You can follow the steps and tick a lot of boxes to you know at least make sure that you're going to make your money back or make some money back. So why do you think like the Rocky movies is so good? Like he made Rocky 1 with what, 110 grand or something? Exactly, like yeah. That. What, and that grossed hundreds of millions. Why Why would you say that that film did so good? What was good about it as a story? It's everyone's story. That's why it was so good. Everybody has that story. Everybody has Rocky in them. Um, and it is a story where it was – the one shot, it's a story about hope and overcoming your personal um, restrictions, adversities. Adversities, exactly, yeah. Um, your personal hurdles and then going for a dream. I mean I think that's in so many, so, so many of us and that's probably one of the reasons why you can watch that film over and over and over again. You watch it and you feel amazing you just go, okay, I can do this. I, yeah. can, I can tackle the week. Yeah, yeah, I watch it at least weekly. Not Rocky <laughs> One, but like 
one of like when he fights Drago and he does the whole Russian thing. That's a great one. Yeah, yeah and, and also they show it in such a easy to understand way. So it is a story of hope and overcoming adversity and coming from nothing and achieving so- and doing something special. And everyone believes that they can do that, whether it be on the surface or very deep down. But it's also boxing, so it's so easy to see what he's doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what does he say? Like, it's not how hard you can get. It's not how hard you can hit. It's how hard you can get, get hit and keep moving forwards. That's a mad line. And do you think they would have sat down? They would have said, "Okay, this is a very relatable story." This is this. Do you think that was on purpose? Oh, hundred percent. Oh, look, he he knew what he was writing. Um, to sly. begin with, yeah, absolutely. He's a genius. Um, yeah, um, um, incredible. And look, it's a story that's been told before, but it was just different. And he did it six times, six Rockies, all exactly the same movie. The story's exactly the yeah. same. Even yeah. the music's the same, the storyline's the same, and you're just like, every time you're like, oh, my God, this is so good. Yeah. It's kind of like Friends, Yeah, the TV show, that's always the same. Yeah. Like really, like we're always in the same apartment, the same jokes, the same kind of similar stuff. Yeah. Same with Law and Order SVU. Yeah. Do you watch Law and Order SVU? I do, yeah. It's literally almost always this, like there's no storyline to SVU. It's just no. you're watching shit happen. Yeah. It's the same concept each time. Yeah. And they're always good. Yeah. Yeah. Apple. And that's just to relate to business. Says, oh, iPhone, yeah. iPad, I, like it just things get bigger and bigger, but the same thing. Exactly. There's a formula to it. And, you know, as consumers, we draw to it there's analytics to it so you know as soon as you start going diverging off you know you, you look at all the um all the big films um the avengers they're pretty much the same as well yeah yeah everything but they work and they gross billions of dollars globally um so you know they know exactly what they're doing yeah, they know the sweet science yeah and so back to doing the you're on the set you're on the set of superman Right. Is shit chaotic? What's it like? Just describe to me. I want to feel like I'm there. Okay, so you're on the set of Superman. You've got you've got about sixteen different departments working really, really closely together. You're looking at about 150 crew on set. You've got another 150 crew offset that are working uh, building sets for next week or next month or whatever. Um, You've got special effects, you've got makeup, you've got actors, you've got art department, you've got standbys, you've got – it is one of the most amazing collaborative experiences you'll ever see because you just watch these people who really, really know their shit. They know the script. They know exactly what needs to happen. They get in there. They get everything ready and then there's a rehearsal and they step off and then – all of a sudden you've got someone in a cape landing off a flying rig, you've got wind effects, you've got leaves flying off a building, you've got a car blowing up in the background, you've got all sorts of stuff happening in that one moment to capture on film. And in the lead up to it, um, it feels a little bit chaotic because there's such a rush to get everything on time because everything's scheduled within an inch of its life. So we know exactly what time we need to turn over, what time we need to finish this scene to move on to the next, to make the day. Because when you're spending a million dollars a day, you start going into overtime, it's really, really expensive. And if you go into tomorrow's schedule, you know, it impacts everything else. So everyone's like really, really busting a gut 
to get everything done as best they can and as perfectly as they can. So watching it unfold, it is an incredible experience. It's kind of like hundreds of people becoming one single organism and just working in unison to create something that looks like chaos but then looks so beautiful like Rocky. Oh, exactly. And they're all really, really invested. They're invested in the story. They're invested in the project. You know, you're talking about people that have – these days are scheduled 12-hour days most, mostly. So yeah, I was going to ask, so how long would you work? How, what was your day like? Oh, I'd, I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, I'd start work at 5.30. I wouldn't get home until 9.30 at night. And were you just – And that was me for almost a year. Um, I'd have one day off a week. Sometimes two. Depends if I wasn't scheduling. And people are having a supplement with like uh, think drugs that keep them up to keep them working or keep them oh, asleep or lots of lots of caffeine. Um, you know, lots of, I, lots of um, you know, I, I found myself having, you know, a few Nurofen because because there was there were headaches coming on and you know, you you just be you just be on a go, 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 go all the time. It isn't a very, very healthy way to work and live. Mm. Um, and that's why after that film I took three months off. Yeah, it's not healthy. <laughs> How many Eurofins would you take a day when you were doing it? Look, you know, I, I, I think um, my, my – um, we'll put it this way. How unhealthy were you? I was pretty unhealthy, mate. <laughs> I was pretty unhealthy. My breakfast was a short black two Eurofin and a Sudafed. <laughs> that's mad. That's actually pretty cool. And, and you survived the day. You survived. But at the end of the film – you were just destroyed. Like your body would collapse, no? You would, yeah. And there was always this thing where, you know, you and crew would say it, You after a film you'd collapse and you'd get sick. You would. Yeah, because you're holding it in. Exactly, you're holding yeah. it all in, you're holding it all in, and then bang, it all releases. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And so I guess you are quite the master storyteller in the sense because you understand how to do that or not just creating the story but also literally making it happen um, literally telling it, I guess. What's the structure of a story? You know, what's the if I'm to think of the story of my brand, or the story of me, or the story of my dog Arnold? You know, yeah. that what's how do you how can you structure a story in a way that is understandable and relatable to to viewers? So, the, and obviously, this is relevant because if you know you want to make a short piece of content or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think for me, one of the most important things for me is that you've got to have uh, an emotional connection. Um, you've, you've, you've got to take people on an, an emotional journey, number one, and even if it's informative. So you've got to make sure that if you connect with them emotionally, you've immediately tapped into their attention. But how do you one. do that? There's so many different layers to the structure, but your traditional way of telling a story is you've got to have an introduction. You've got to set it up, which is always the beginning. So you set the story you've got up to have the a sense. You've, you've got to have a sense of place. Yeah. Because if you don't have a sense of place and there's no context, not then story. it's not, you know, exactly. So you set the introduction, then you get emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And then straight away, emotion with information. The information needs to be there because you need to explain who, why, where. Probably the biggest reason is why. Why you're there. After why, you've got how. Oh, so you play through all that. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got closure. At the end, everyone wants it to be tied off. With something nice, nice little bow. Exactly. I was doing a bit of research and I read of this thing called the Cinderella storyline, 
or the Disney storyline. I can't remember what it is. Yeah. And it goes something similar to what you're saying. It's like, and apparently all, like 99% of Disney movies follow this storyline, which is movie starts, let's just say girls in bad situation. Yeah. Girl gets into slightly better situation. Girl goes into worse situation, worse than when it started. Then girl goes into best situation that she could possibly ask for and she finishes there. Yeah. And they called that the Cinderella or the – I can't remember if it was the Cinderella storyline, the movie story. Is that a real thing? Or well, it's the same with Rocky. Garbage? You just explained Rocky. Yeah, see, they're the all same. geniuses. It's they don't a, know what they're doing. It's the same formula. It's the exact same formula. Yeah. Look, you know, you can translate that to uh, creating content for your business or you can translate that. It's very, very different though because you've got so many different ways of, of – uh, when, when it comes to business to, to, you know, selling your product or service um, because, you know, you've got brand awareness, which is what we did with, with the Cub TVC. Yeah, let's um, let the listeners know that uh, Geo actually did – so we did Cub's first ever TV commercial. Um, last year, was it? I think so, It was so, like yeah. so long ago, doesn't it? It was last year. And uh, Geo made a stunning-looking TV commercial for us. We actually looked very professional. <laughs> Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome, mate. And the set was nowhere near as chaotic as it was in Superman, was it? No, no. no there was no. Some, some spastic uh, entrepreneur running around the shop just yelling things at people. <laughs> but other than that, it was pretty good. We had a great time. It was awesome. Yeah, I loved, I loved watching you, you actually the, the, just the professionalism of it. I, it, made me feel, it made me feel cool just watching that for, for Cub, you know. And so – Let's let's because really what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out how can someone tell their brand story. That's what I want. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. So we can use Cub as an example because it's my favorite example. So how would I tell Cub's brand story? What would be the structure of which I would try to follow in order to create? This is the story of the company, or this is the story of the brand, or this is the story of my client. You know, yeah. A member of you, of a yeah. member. You know. How do I go about that? How can I think about that? What's the system? I think. Um, well, when we did the TVC and you and I went through the whole strategy of, of, and we broke it down and we spent like a week breaking down what the actual DNA of what Cub meant to us and the, and the um, potential audience. I think the first thing is that you've got to understand is that you're putting out content and you've got to think of the audience first. What do you think that they want to hear first and you've got to completely remove yourself and this is where a lot of people actually get stuck you've got to completely remove yourself from your brand and look at it from the outside dissect it and then think about okay i'm going to create this content it's going to be visual and it's going to have audio what's the first thing that i want to hear as an entrepreneur sitting at home or in my office and i'm going to watch this ad and that first step is really, really important because then from there you start to write the rest of the content from a completely different perspective. And I see this with a lot of organisations where they get, they're, they're so much into their brand and they think that they know exactly what their potential clients want to hear but everything that they've written comes from a personal place. You've got to understand the audience don't have a personal relationship with your brand at all. That's a really interesting thought. Yeah, you could have completely. It's not what you want to say. It's what your what's what your audience, what your target market wants to hear. Exactly. Yeah. What's going to work for them? Mm. How are you going to help them? How are they going to benefit from your service or your product? Um, and, and it's hard for even myself to do that in my own organization. 
And that's why collaboration and working with people outside your organisation works well. That's a formula that works well. That's why companies go to companies like ours, go to advertising agencies, for them to look at their brand from the outside, rip it apart and go, right, we've done the market research, we've looked at the analytics, we've looked at your brand and this is how we think it's best to communicate based on how the audience is going to respond. And what you said also that's really cool. So, yeah, think what what your target market wants to hear, not what you want to say. But then the next step is hook them straight away. What's the first thing they want to hear? And that's important because if you don't catch them, they're not listening to the rest anyway. So you may as well grab them real quick. And so really it's kind of like what's going to make your target market say, okay, I want to hear more. And like it might not even be something to do with your business, right? Like it could be saying like a question. Like for example, if it was Cub, like if I saw like a video pop up and it said, what's the, you know, the greatest lesson, the greatest lesson ever le- ever learnt or taught by, you know, Steve Jobs was. I'd be like, yeah. oh yeah, fuck, I'd probably listen to the next yeah. step. It might be stupid but I'm going to listen anyway just to yeah. see it. You know, something, it doesn't even have to be to do with you or the company. It could just, it's, and that's not the point. The point is that well, the first the first hurdle is actually getting their attention. Absolutely. So you've got to grab, is that correct? 100%. And look, a perfect example is that I saw, I, I saw an ad recently on, on air um, for, uh, I can't remember which bank it was, but it was about home loans. And the first few words were, finding it hard to get a home loan. Straight away, I knew exactly who they were targeting. They mentioned nothing about who they were, caring about people. The first few words were, finding it hard to get a home loan. Straight That's away. True. It was communicating directly to an audience for that reason. Um, and then from there, the rest of the ad explained what they need to explain. To, to explain. Mm. And also the people, yeah, everyone that's finding it hard to get a home loan is like, yeah, I actually am. I'm easily exactly. I'm, I'm, <laughs> That's me. Yeah, I'm listening. Yeah. You got my attention. It could even be a little bit more like, like for Cub, it could be, are you an accomplished entrepreneur? Exactly. I'd be like, yeah, I'll keep listening because that's me. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's almost like calling out to the person that you want to call out to. That's right. Yeah? Yeah. And then, and then what? You then take them on the... Exactly, yeah. And then it goes into the why and goes into the, the how and then your call to action at the end. The why, you mean why, why you're calling out, why you should know about us? Exactly. So grab your attention, why you should know about us, how we do that for you. This is how we can help. And then the end is like a beautiful, it's like you tie the ribbon and the bow, it's finished. It's like, oh. Exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll make it better for you. Mm. We're here to make your life better. And so what's a... And just so everyone knows, TVC stands for, and so I know, TVC stands for TV commercial. Yeah, and it's it's a bit of a, like at the at the moment, like TV commercial uh, traditionally for broadcast, but there's actually no word for online. It's the same process. It's, the same it's exactly the same cameras. It's the same everything. It's a video. Exactly. It just happens for to be. advertising in, use. Yeah, 15, 30 or 60 seconds. And so how do you create a strategy, a campaign strategy around that? Is that what we were just talking about? Um, look, a whole campaign strategy, you're looking at uh, con- content for uh, a, lo- a longer period. Um, and it really just depends on, on, you know, what the goals are of the company, you know, what their long-term goals are in marketing. You know, that's everything from whether they've got the budget for broadcast, whether it's purely online. You know, we get uh, people like um, Blake from GSM involved through mm-hmm. Facebook marketing um, who's amazing. 
Um, and he's done, you know, campaigns for us that have that have created incredible results. But the strategy behind that isn't just about creating the content, it's about the platforms that it's going to be pushed on. Where are we going to find our audience? So how do you go about actually creating a strategy? What's your thought process? The beginning is really just going through what the client, uh, you know, what they're selling, what their product or service is, looking at where their competition is, looking at where their competition aren't, where we can maximise their… Message. Yeah, but also maximise their spend. Like they're going to be spending money. We want to make sure that well, whatever we're creating is going to have a good return on their investment. So looking at where their competition is, where their competition aren't, you know, Blake was wonderful at that in understanding um, for one of our campaigns, like he created 100 leads a week for one of our clients, which was incredible. Blake McCuller, our member, by the way, guys. Yeah. So, okay, but you have to also find the goal. So what, what do you actually want to achieve, no? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's about understanding business yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. Strategy comes in understanding business and what the goals of the business are. Um, but then also you've also got brand awareness, you've got, you've got retail, you've got so many different ways that you can design the content. So it's finding out what it is that we need to create for that particular part of the business. Some businesses have different arms. What, what part of that business needs more attention? If it's not a product... And if it's not a service, if it's just brand awareness, it's a completely different strategy. You know, if it's a product that they've got that they need to sell, that they want to sell, that they want to launch, we've got to look at how much brand awareness there is prior to that. People aren't just going to buy a product because you've put out an ad. Um, So, you know, strategy behind it is really, really complicated, but it's really, really important because it's setting it up for success and that's the most important part the pre-production and the planning and the strategy is really, really important to get right. We did that with um, a company called Riverview Farms Pork Roast. It was a product that they were about to throw in the bin and now it's in Coles. They were selling… Okay, let's talk about that. What yeah. did you do? What was special about it? That's what I, I really want to know. What's that? How can people do that? Well, we spent many, many weeks um, trying to actually come up with a TV commercial that was going to tick a few goals… This is a company that had never actually advertised. They, they had this in IGA. It wasn't selling well, but they came to us and said that we want to put, and they put a lot of money behind this ad campaign. It was going on air during The Voice. But this campaign needed to have brand awareness. It needed to show the quality of the product, that it was something that they could actually, you know, people could actually pick up. It was a ready-to-go product. It was a hot roast pork in the supermarket. But with no brand awareness, no one knew what the product was. It was it was fairly new on the market. Most supermarkets have only got hot chickens. Um, and it needed a call to action as well. And it needed a story. So we went through many, many scripts um, and then we eventually landed on one that ticked all those boxes. And, and by go through many scripts, you mean you guys wrote many scripts? We, yeah, we, we wrote many scripts. Once we created the ad, um, we tested it. We made sure that people understood, people had a connection with it. Um, and then when it was launched, that went from selling 12,000 units a week Australia-wide to 50,000 a week. And what was – so what was the ad? How did you deliver all those messages? 
the whole concept of the ad was that you could go and pick up a very much like a homemade roast pork, just like Nana would make it at the supermarket, ready to go, and you can bring it home to your family. You know, the perfect uh, crispy crackle pork. So we had scenes of Nana putting roast in the oven with her family. Um, it goes in, It goes in the oven, it comes out, but when it comes out of the oven, we're now in the supermarket. This young guy who's time poor is in the supermarket, he sees the roast pork, he picks it up, he takes it home to his family and he's the hero. So we basically targeted and all these strategies came into uh, – sorry, all, all these key messages were part of our strategy, people that are time poor, people that can afford to pay, you know, $18.50 for a hot roast pork. It was a certain demographic in the casting. or Everything came into play. Um, that does the, sound like a brilliant commercial. In the planning. I think the brilliant thing about it is that it worked. If it didn't work, it wouldn't be brilliant. Um, but the visuals were right, the, the, the messages were right. Um, it ticked all the boxes that we needed to tick and, you know, they didn't have to, you know, ditch, ditch the product. And so how do you build a brand identity? Right, because you're communicating through a video. Yeah. But what's the brand identity? Is that in the video or is that before? It definitely is. It's in the video. It's in the visuals. Um, it's in the uh, voiceovers. It's in the it's in the communication. And look, generally, it just doesn't work with one. Normally, it takes multiple. Look, you do it a lot with Cub. Um, you've built incredible brand awareness with Cub with everything that you do um, through Facebook, through Instagram, through LinkedIn. the video content that you put out, through the podcast. All this is brand awareness. Um, and it's just building the brand but also being consistent and being true to your brand and making sure that you've got the right plan. You can't go – you can't start here and then start doing something different down here and go up and down like this. Mm-hmm. When you start your brand awareness and you start your campaign, you want to work across a, a continuous line. So It's a consistency thing. Exactly. It's very important building your brand. So it's so it's so, it's so important because when you finally – understand who what your brand is and who you are and you start getting people to connect with your brand and follow your brand they're following it for a reason if you start going off in different directions then you're going to start losing your audience and what do you think reasons people follow a brand are like why would someone follow a brand what's the reason so for example what's a brand that you're working with currently I've been working with Aldi. I've been doing most of their retail ads for the past two years. It's a big, big, big brand to be working with, eh? Yeah, yeah. And and so, um, like, what what's the message that you're communicating for that, or that they're communicating? Uh, what why do people follow Aldi? I think what resonates with people is that look, their products are actually really, really good quality, and they've built a reputation for having good quality products, but without the fuss, and without the bullshit, really. I think Aldi's um, marketing and their messaging is really, really honest. They don't try to, um, how do you say, they don't try to bullshit the audience. You know, they've got their good different messaging but at the same time their ad campaigns have got a lot of humour. They they don't try to sugarcoat anything. It's It's a bit blunt but it's also humorous it's funny and how does that differ to like other supermarkets 
if you watch a Coles ad, if you watch a Woolies ad, they're very, very similar in the way they structure their messaging. In the Aldi campaigns, I've had mandarins doing ballet. <laughs> like it is mental, a, a croissant in space. Like we've been doing things that are so different and what like what we talked about earlier, the hook, um, getting their attention early is what Aldi does um, and they do do it differently but they approach it with humour and they approach it with honesty and they approach it with something different, something that you normally, you know, they want to cut through the noise and that's really, really important these days. And look, at the end of the day, they're lucky that they've actually got good quality products and I think that's why people keep coming back is that the messaging comes across, we get their attention and the product is good. So they've ticked all three boxes. And um, is, is that at your discount supermarket? I think or in no. some in some like is it lower cost than Woolies and Coles? Would you say? I think in some areas they are. Yeah, yeah. And so therefore they would be appealing to different demographic, and therefore can have really they well, they want to say okay, well, we want to be we want to look very different at Coles and Woolies. Yeah. How are we going to do that? Let's send a croissant to space. Yeah. Coles and Woolies never did that. No. And so did you do the croissant in space commercial? We did. Yeah. And what was the concept of it? Or what was the idea behind it? What was that supposed to communicate? Just the, the freshness and the, the beautiful texture of the actual croissant. It was... Why was it in space? That was like, that was like well, let's just do something crazy. And the creatives came up, you know, from BMF, the advertising agency who are wonderful. They said, we want to look, make it feel like that this croissant is in space, like it's something that was just extraordinary. It's like, okay, we want to express that it's really, really flaky, it's buttery, it's beautiful... I said, okay, well, we can try and do this. How are we going to make a croissant in space? So what we did was is that we, we filmed this croissant at, with a high-speed camera at 1,000 frames a oh, second. going slow motion in, in the air. In full slow motion. And I had the standby props guy. What he did was is that he, um, he, he got his little scalpel and he spent like hours the day before cutting all the little flaky bits um, but just, just cutting them ever so lightly um, – so that when, well, what we did was is that we, we put the croissant on a stand um, and we got the high-speed camera out and then we got the air gun. And he had like multiple croissants ready to go. So we got the high-speed camera, we turned it over and with this camera you need, a, you need so much light. It's like really, really Why so is that? studio. When you're shooting at such high speed, the, um, the frame is turning over uh, really, really, really fast and it's not letting in a lot of light. Oh, so it needs an extreme amount of light to, to exactly. be normal. Yeah, so you need – so it's, a, it's an expensive process. So you need to pump up the studio with light. Then we blew it with like an air compressor and then it gave us the impression that all these little flakes were like floating in zero gravity. So we created zero gravity with a high-speed camera and a croissant floating through and little things ripping off it. Um, wow. Like – yeah, like, croissant does look a bit meteorish as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we had a lot of fun with it. Like we were, we were throwing it across the frame and we had it overhead and it would just float through. Like it was awesome. Oh, that is pretty cool. Yeah. But what was important was that you're communicating to a different market of Coles and Woolies yeah. and you're communicating in a way that appealed to that market. Exactly, yeah. In a, in a way that also delivered the key message of the product, which in that case was, hey, we have beautiful croissants. They're so good they're out of this world. Uh, and they're amazing. Like they're from they're f- they're from Paris. I couldn't believe it. 
The actual croissants are from Paris. Yeah. Wow. Like they're from France. That's brilliant. My auntie yeah. loves Aldi. Okay, give us another one. What's another brand you're working with? Um, I did work with um, Hungry Jacks. I worked with um, – Tell us the story. Tell us the sister. I love this. Well, I did a couple of ads with Hungry, Hungry Jacks and like they're they're amazing and the way they stick to the formula of, of – and we were talking about consistency before mm-hmm. and if you look at all those big brands, they're so consistent. McDonald's are consistent. Are. yes. And they've got so many people making sure that the consistency is upheld everything from the design of the ad all the way through to me in production. That's a very good point. All the big companies, they focus so much on consistency and that's something that smaller businesses do not do. No. Consistency is key. Yeah. And as much as you think you should be following what everyone else is doing, you've got to step back and you've got to look at your brand and go, right, is that me? Because if it's not me, then I shouldn't be doing it because you're going to piss off your audience. You're going to piss off your following. You're going to go, right, okay, do something different, but do it within your brand. Don't go outside. Don't deviate too far out because you're going to get off track. And how do you know what's within your brand? I think that's where collaboration comes in. What do you mean? As in going to an exterior source outside your company if you need the help, if, if you're unsure. Unless, look, I've worked with companies that have got incredible marketing people that are in the organisation. Like Star Casino is one of our... Um, biggest clients and we service them weekly. They've got a fantastic marketing team who actually understand the brand really, really well Um, and they rarely need to go to large advertising agencies for anything really. We we work with them directly um, and they're very, very consistent. They know their brand identity, they know their marketing strategy, they know… But how would… so for me, you know, for a listener and the members listening… Yeah. How could you kind of construct your, your brand identity? How would you know when you're in and when you're out of it? How, how do you think about that? Is it your demographic? Is it the service? Is it your premiumness of your brand? What, you know, is it a, how would you suggest? I think you start to notice if you're outside your brand identity when your messaging is a little bit uh, confused. And I think every business owner knows that. I, I knew that um, a few years ago. Um, that the message that we were giving to some of our, you know, potential clients wasn't quite right. Um, And we went to an external source to sort that out because within your own business it's hard to remove yourself from, you know, what you think is right. And, you know, at the end of the day that's why I think collaboration is still king. It's cool. So you're saying it is very important for people outside your business to actually think about your business. Yeah. Definitely. And so with Hungry Jacks, the process, they came to you, they said, hey, we want a commercial. What do they tell you? What type of things would a brand say to you? Well, that was that was through an advertising agency. So a lot of that was already sorted out before I got there. Okay. Yeah, because you're doing the actual production. Exactly, okay. yeah. So for me, it was executing the TV commercial. The and there were a lot of guidelines. There were a lot of guidelines that you needed to follow. They want to deviate too far. Such as? Um, everything from set, colour, temperature, tone, um, music, messaging, speed of burger rotation. Well, they hired me because a lot of the food stuff that I had done before was different, and they wanted to take, they wanted to elevate their food uh, porn, for instance, mm-hmm. to a new level, and that's the reason why I got hired. Ah, so you actually have a bit of a reputation in the food, in the food I space. I do, yeah. Because didn't you do? Didn't you tell me? It, I, I might be talking absolute shit here, but. Didn't you at one point tell me you made a TV show with your mum cooking? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was an experiment. Um, but it became but big, didn't it? It did. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, for for that, my mum, we did a um, because we created my family feast for SBS mm-hmm. um, and did a bunch of. I think we've done like six different food programs now since then. Um, and then on that on my family feast, my mother was in the show with the chef, and I looked at her and I just went, you know what, you're actually pretty good, right? <laughs> And I thought, let's do a little experiment on YouTube. Um, and we did some recipes with with my mum, and we pumped them out on YouTube. And then before we knew so it, so she's she cooking was, on YouTube. She's saying, cooking on she's YouTube. She's like it's like a cooking show, but she's exactly. your mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know what? This is actually fun. It was us at home on a Sunday, um, and we were filming, and we put them out on YouTube. It was good for to get our recipes down anyway for like the next generation, mm. and. Before we knew it, it was like the local paper got hold of it, picked her up and just went, oh, can we interview you? So there was an interview in the local paper. Then the, she was on the Today Show um, and then she got, you know, uh, brands wanted to get involved um, and get her on board and she she, she was working with um, a company called um, Seagrass where she put her recipe to, her, to a, a, a restaurant um, and, you know, Beyond that, you know, she's talking to them about her own um, work. So it is, um, you know. It, and how a, did you know she was going to be a winner? Like what was it that you said, okay, this is good. This is going to communicate well. This is going to communicate well. Um, it's going to be received well by the audience. I think it just comes with experience. Yeah. Um, and just seeing, you know, understanding talent and recognising talent. Um, you know, you can tell after years and years of doing it, you can, you know, just like any job, you know, you can spot it. You just go, right, okay, you know what, she actually she's got something there. Who is more difficult, your mum or like the professional actors on the sets, like the big actors? My mother. Yeah. <laughs> what are the big actors like? They're actually really great, man. Really? Yeah, look. They're not pains in the ass. No, 95% of them are awesome. Um, they're such professional. I want to hear about the 5%. The 5% <laughs> yeah. of... Fucking horrible. Yeah, <laughs> why? What do they do? What's the story? You don't have to say who the actor is. But I won't tell you who they are, no. but you know what? Like give us some They're things, some crazy shit that they've done or have oh. asked for or like tantrums they've had. Give us a bit of goss. Tantrums, um, fighting on set with other actors. Well, I've, Fist I've, fight? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've worked on a film where um, we actually couldn't have them on set. There were two leads, two of the biggest leads in the film and three quarters of the way through the film or maybe half – um, they couldn't be on set together, so we had to use doubles. Over shoulder double onto one lead, and over shoulder double onto the other. They had a massive fallout on set. No and way. Purely because one of them was so into himself and didn't want to. Um, uh, he was making his own documentary about himself and was turning up late, and it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. That's pretty crazy. Anything yeah. else? That's a good one. Do you have another one? Oh, yeah, a lot of it comes from, um, you know, some of them. And I'm really only talking about 5% of them. Yeah, that's what um, I know. The 5% yeah. I care about. Yeah. Just being late, not turning up, sleeping in, you know, getting to set. They and then dr- like on drugs or really drunk when they get to set? I've seen a few hangovers. Yeah. But not drunk. Not not drunk no. on set. No. Okay, that's not too bad. Yeah. But, you know, the the some of the most annoying things were, you know, actors turning up and turning up to the trailer and then just going straight into bed. I'd call the unit manager and just say, 
get rid of the beds. Like, because <laughs> they'd turn into, we'd have those big, beautiful Winnie Bagos for them. They'd literally, like, just turn up and just go in there and just go back into bed. And you go, mate, no, you can't do that. And we're here so, to film. And here I am, you know, in there, dragging this actor out of bed, kicking and screaming. You going, are. Yeah, get in the makeup chair. You know, <gasps> oh we've got work God. to do. And who do you have to deal with in relation to the actors? So, like, would the director deal directly with the actors or did you have to go through their agent or? Oh, no. Like in, I mean, in day-to-day dealings. Like, day-to-day hey, dealings. Get over there. And that was me. That was my job in terms of making sure that they got on set on time. Do you ever get starstruck or are you like, no, nah, man, just get over there? Not really, no. Did anyone no. on the set get starstruck? I think. Like, or are they just used to actors? Um. No, they're quite used to them. I don't think I ever got starstruck personally. I think maybe two moments. Who? One of them was was George Clooney. Oh, yeah, I'd be um, starstruck. And, um, Handsome dude. And we, we, we only had him for like two weeks and that was the first film I worked on, The Thin Red Line. And he came up to me and he looked at me and he goes, I like your eyebrows. No, went, he didn't. What? And he, he did this to my eyebrows and he goes. He touched them. He goes, they're like mine. <laughs> And then he walked away. And I was a bit like, oh, my God, it's George Clooney. George Clooney just um, rubbed my eyebrows. Yeah. Um, and he was he was awesome. Um, is, he, is he a nice guy? A lovely bloke. Wow, yeah, yeah I think he'd yeah. be a nice guy. Yeah. Who else did you get starstruck with? The only other time I got starstruck was um, Julia Roberts, but I didn't meet her though. I spoke to her on the phone. <laughs> what you sp- yeah. What are you talking about? I can't even remember. Really? You were just I, <laughs> too nervous? Yeah. It was. Um, I was doing a film called Red Planet and we had Benjamin Bratt and um, on set and um, I was standing there and he was getting ready for a scene and he was putting on his like this was a film where he had to wear a space suit and he's putting on his gloves and he was on the phone and I'm like okay come on mate you got to get ready you got to you know put this stuff on and he goes and he's like yeah, yeah sure 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 he goes and he says he, he says uh, um, hey baby here uh, just just a minute say hello and so he hands the phone to me I had no idea he was on the phone so then I, I just say hello and then she says, hi, it's Julia. And I'm like, and it just clicked. And I went, oh, shit, Holy this is Julia shit. Roberts. <laughs> and I think she asked me whether I'm, you know, how's Ben doing and am I looking after him? Because, you know. you know, Your girlfriend. Yeah. She's, I, I, I'm pretty sure Ben said, you know, say, say hello to Gio. He's, he's, he's a third AD. Um, and so she knew exactly my position and, you know, she asked whether I was, you know, making sure that, you know, he's looked after. But that was the one of the moments where I just my tongue was twisted. I had no idea what the hell to say. How amazing is that? Yeah. That would be so cool. And what's happening with the industry now? How has it changed? Just I guess film industry or even TVCs and things like that. What's 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 changing? Because obviously the studios or whoever they are or the uh, who used to pay for the TV shows and stuff. Oh yeah. So yeah. Look, a brand funded model came in um, like we were one of the first ones to actually introduce it um, when the networks just started, especially in Australia. Brand fun- but what was what was happening before there was brand funded? Before that, you know, a lot of the networks were actually, you know, paying 100% for the television series so like- and they still do. They still commission 100% but it's very, very hard and very rare that they, you know, just give you the full whack of… Unless they're certain it's going to be a good show. So, exactly. for example, like Channel 9 would… Uh, Back in the day, it would be a lot easier to get money from them to go create a show for them to air and to make money through advertising. 
Exactly, yeah. yeah. But now. But now they require you to, you know, go and get part funding or at least half the amount of funding. We're not talking about Channel 9, obviously. We're talking about networks in general. Yeah. But, but to, All sorts of networks. Yeah. And, and so they'll, they'll, so you'd have to go find funding to create the show. Exactly, yeah. So they didn't have the huge cost of forking out half a million or yeah. a million dollars. And and then so how does brand funding work? Because that's what you're saying. That's what it is now. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's that's um, it's a really interesting model and it works quite well. It's actually telling a brand story within a television series. So one of our TV shows we did in New Zealand um, called On the Grill and it was a food program. And we went and told a brand story about um, a company. It was a, a muscle, you know, New Zealand fresh mussels. So we went on that journey with the chef. We went to and, and we saw where they harvest them. We told the story within, you know, three and a half, four minutes of the program. And everyone, the, the audience, got to see who they were, what they did, how beautiful their product is. The chef got to cook with their product out on a boat. Um, and so this company invested in that episode as part funding. Oh, so you had – so you were doing a, a, like a, a food show where there's a food person travelling the world, let's say, and going to different food places. Like when yeah. they go to Thailand, they try like noodles and shit or whatever they try there. Yeah. And so a brand was able to pay for part of that episode yeah. to be featured in that episode. To be featured in it. Like yeah. come check out our oysters. Exactly. But it's natural. It doesn't look like an ad. They're no, just in there. exactly. And that's what brand know. funding is. Yeah, you wouldn't even know you're watching uh, a basically a beautifully structured infomercial. Mm. Yeah. But you're just going to look at it and go, oh, my God, those 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 muscles are beautiful. Um, you know, where can I get them from? Mm. Um, and that's what brand funding does. It allows the brand to actually, instead of having 30 seconds of screen time, they've had four minutes of screen time for like a quarter of the price. And so that's a, a newer kind of adaption due to the change in media and spend by companies. Maybe not all companies are going through the networks now. They're going through digital medias and things like that. It's caused the networks have less funds. So exactly. they're more strict with their funds. And what about the film industry? How has that changed yeah, over time since you started? Has it changed in COVID, would you say? Oh, yeah. Like it's really, really impacted the way we work. Not only because having people on set, you can't make anything with people, you know, working remotely. Yeah. Are they it's making just, films at the moment? There's a, there's a few. Um, there's a few. They've, they've had crews in isolation, like 100%. The whole crew has to be in isolation. Exactly. Like how our football teams are working. Mm-hmm. Same with crews. And there's been a couple of films that have – and that happened halfway through COVID – um, where they were already in production so and they they're starting, yeah. So they're starting to pick up now again. And I think now that we've got um, we've got uh, a policy in place on how we're supposed to work. Like I was on set the other week where we had, you know, a marshal on set. Everyone was wearing masks. Um, a marshal that was making sure that we were 1.5 metres distance apart. Um, so it, it is quite a strict code. But because we're in the spotlight um, and... For some reason, people like to uh, dob us in if we're doing something wrong. Um, we have to stick by those guidelines. So everything is a lot slower. It's a lot trickier. Is it more expensive to do? Look, it can be. I think it can be because slower. it's, it's, it's going to be slower. Time. It's going to take longer. And how do you or do you have any opinions on how COVID's going to affect the film industry moving forwards? For example, I know there's a lot of films that are not going to cinema. They're going straight out onto onto Apple or whatever it is. And yeah. So do you have any opinions on that? Mate, to be honest, I, I don't know where it's going to go. I just want COVID um, gone, gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so we can, you know, 
get back to normal. But, uh, you know, it, look, if it's here forever, it'd be sad to not be able to work the way we did because it was such a wonderful process. Um, but there's always going to be ways that we're going to have to adapt and change regardless. It is here. There are measures that we're going to have to put in um, and we're just going to have to work through it. I don't think there's any um, – there's, there's no magic solution right now because we're still all learning and still trying to understand the mechanics of how to work. And just before we finish up, I want to ask you a couple important questions. The yeah. first was why did you join Cub three and a half years ago? What was the reason? I think for me what attracted me to Cub was, look, I come from a background where business – is not your first, uh, how do you say, your first, it, it wasn't my first uh, education. Filmmaking was and being on set was. So I wanted to learn more about business. It, you know, as I was starting, you know, uh, as, as I'd been in business for a few years already and I, and I knew I wasn't doing things right. So there, there was that reason. Um, Amazing. And then when I understood what Cub was, and I, th- I looked at it from a different point of view. I thought, oh, my God, look at all these amazing people, business leaders. They're like the 15 or 16 different departments on a film set. So I thought if I can learn off them, if I can collaborate with them and turn my company into the film and, and look at it from that point of view and go, because I know, I know collaboration is king. I know it works. Um, and where else better to, you know, immerse myself in in a, you know, in, in, in Cub where I can actually leverage off that. That's incredible. I love that analogy of it. And, um, and I guess what have you loved most about it? What, what, are, what has it done for you? Oh, look, I, I think a lot of the uh, connections I've made, the work that we've done, um, the work that we've done with different Cub members, the referrals have been incredible because once you build great relationships and, you know, you, you, you understand uh, the members of, of, of how they operate, you, you can easily refer business. And that's one of the hardest things is making sure that, you know, when clients come to us and they need a service somewhere else is knowing where to send them uh, to, a, to a trusted yeah, source. Yeah, confidence in sending them somewhere. And, and what about the knowledge aspect? Did you learn, did you learn a lot about business? Account? I've learned so much. Matt? I've learned so much. Um, and your, what would you say your favourite – do you want to do a favourite lesson, a favourite book, a favourite movie or a favourite quote to leave us with? You can do two of them. I don't them. mind. Let's talk about your favourite film actually first and then okay. do a lesson yeah, sure. because I want, I want the film first because that's yeah. what you do. That's your industry. Yeah. What's your favourite film? My favourite film is a film called Eight and a Half. Uh, it's a Fellini film and I think the reason why I love it so much is it's one of those films that is um, – it's not a traditional formula and it's something that you can continually watch over and over again and still learn from it, learn from its messaging. What's it about? Learn from its story. It's about a director who has a, a writer's block and really doesn't understand or really doesn't know – what he wants to achieve um, out of, of, of he's, got, he's got everyone at him, all these different departments. And I think I like it more because it is relatable to me. Um, but what he's struggling with is his creativity and the journey that he takes to find it and what he realises at the end um, isn't important, um, I think is something that, that continually... Uh, I see in a lot of us and 
I think a film like that for me is quite strong. Is it an old film? Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure it was made in like the 50s. Oh, it's old. Yeah. But for – eight and a half. And who's the director? Yeah. Federico Fellini. Federico Fellini. Yeah. If you're obviously Italian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so you really but chose the movie that was the most <laughs> similar to you. But it was, you know, he's one of he's he's one of the greatest. Like, if you look at the top ten filmmakers of all time, he's in it. Like, for that reason, you listen to the dialogue and you just go far out. It's that good. He was way ahead of his time. Incredible. And your favorite or, or the biggest lesson you've learned in business? One of the biggest could be in business. It also could be to do with storytelling, branding, film creation. Just a big lesson I want. I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is. And it's something that I took from me from, you know, working on films. As soon as you become uh, comfortable, as soon as you become complacent, as soon as you're not tweaking your business and not tweaking your brand and not evolving and changing, that's when you start to fail. You've got to treat every day as your last day. Um, and if you're not looking at if, if if you're not looking at tomorrow, if you're not looking at next week, if you're not worrying about next week, um, if you're not doing your research, if you're not taking the time to set yourself up for success, I think then that's when businesses start to really plateau. Um, and if you're not paying attention to that, then that's when you can start to fall. Yeah, you can turn a business around in a day, and that's my opinion. I really believe that. I really think you can because you know you can work twenty four hours a day. I know that you you know I've done it. When you become lazy and you're not setting yourself up for success and that's one of the key words and I've said that a lot to a lot of people. There's no point rushing into something if you're not setting yourself up for success. Set yourself up for success first and then follow the steps because, you know, that is something that is the most important thing for your business. You mean that there is a formula to do it? That there well. is a formula, absolutely. And there's, you can follow that. You can follow the formula, especially today with the internet. There's so much knowledge out there. There are so many people leaving steps to success. Like if you're if you're not looking at it, you're lazy. Yeah. You're read looking a book. at the read a book, exactly. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things. And then collaboration. Collaboration is key. Collaboration with your staff, collaboration with everyone that you're working with, your clients. Um, you know, collaborators at Cub, different members. You know, they're the two key lessons. Love it. Thank you, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the show.